If you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Opie show. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie show where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. Byron Hurt is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, writer, and activist. His documentaries include Soul Food Junkies, Hazing, Hip Hop, Beyond Beats, and Rhymes. Hurt played quarterback at Northeastern University. He has been active as a filmmaker and speaker in the struggle against violence, misogyny, and homophobia. Check out our links at the end of the show in the show notes, and you will see links to how to find out more about Byron Hurt and some of the books that he mentioned. Where did you go to high school? I went to a high school on Long Island called Central Islip High School. Central Islip is almost right in the middle of Long Island, Suffolk County. And the school that I went to had a very large percentage of black and Latino students mixed with white students. Although the town, Central Islip, is very segmented. At least when I was growing up there, you had communities that were mostly black. Um, you had some communities that were mostly white, and you had uh, like a handful of communities that were mixed. It was a very small percentage of Asian uh, people in our community. And that's where I played high school football, was a member of the marching band, you know, from the time that I was a freshman until I was a junior. Um, I played percussion. We have an expression in our town, see pride. There's a lot of pride, you know, that comes out of that town. So you mentioned that you played football in high school. Growing up, what was your favorite number and why that number? My favorite number had to be number 17. I won number 17 in honor of Doug Williams, first mm-hmm. black quarterback to win the Super Bowl. I believe he won MVP of that Super Bowl for the Washington Redskins. I looked up to, to Doug Williams and I wanted to uh, carry on his tradition. So I won number 17 in honor of him. So I would have to say 17 is my favorite number. I decided to wear number eight when I was in college. I ran an option offense. And at that time, most of the option quarterbacks wore single-digit numbers. So I wore number eight. And I and I wore that number in honor of Vince Evans. He was a quarterback that used to play for the Chicago Bears. He may have played for a couple of other teams. But he was another black quarterback. And, uh, and I chose that number in honor of him. My very first number was number 23. And it was number 23 because I couldn't wear number 32. And I wanted to wear number 32 in honor of O.J. Simpson, who at that time was tearing up the league for the Buffalo Bills. Somebody who I looked up to at that time for what he did on the football field. And um, and so I won number 23. That was my very first number as a seven-year-old. Isn't it interesting when you ask a question about a number, particularly us athletes. I'm like you. I was an athlete. The symbolism, because every number I wore, like you, there was a person behind it. There was a story behind it. Yeah. Um, I totally forgot about when you said 17, I'm sitting here in my mind thinking, 
Why 17? And then you said Doug Williams. Took pride in wearing number 17, you know, and it was because of Doug Williams. Mm. I love Doug Williams. I thought that he was incredible. I thought he had an incredibly strong arm. Um, I love the fact that he went to Grambling and had that, it came out of that wrist tradition with Eddie Robinson at Grambling. And uh, I just thought that he was the perfect person to sort of model myself after, you know, as a black quarterback. So you go on to play uh, collegiate football and get your degree from Northeastern. Why Northeastern? Uh-huh. Why did you decide to go there? You know, I went to Northeastern for a handful of reasons. When I was a senior, a junior and a senior, I was highly recruited coming out of high school. Um, I was an all-Long Island football player, made Daily News all-Long Island, Newsday all-Long Island. Um, I came in third place for the Hanson Award um, on Long Island, which is the Hanson Award goes to the best football player in the county. We won the championship my, my senior year. And I really wanted to continue playing quarterback. But at that time, you know, it was still challenging to, to, to be a college quarterback, a black college quarterback more specifically. And so I had a lot of recruiters, you know, recruiting me as a DB or as a receiver. Some wanted me, you know, to maybe even consider playing running back. I didn't want to change my position. Northeastern was one of the only schools that guaranteed that they would allow me to play quarterback. Um, there were many schools that recruited me as a quarterback athlete, and that was really cold for, we're going to give you a shot at quarterback, but we're likely going to change your position. You know, because I, I did not want to change my position, and because I felt like, you know, the system that Northeastern University ran at that time, it closely resembled my high school football um, offense. Plus, pretty much told me that I would, I would start as a freshman um, and they really sold me on the co-op program at Northeastern, you know, that I would have the opportunity to work in my field, make money as I was going to school. That appealed to me. And so that's the reason why I chose to go there. It was the fact that Northeastern promised that I would that I would play quarterback, and that's what I really wanted to do. What was your major? I knew I wanted to get into the media somehow. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do within the media. Um, but I majored in speech communication, and I quickly learned that that was not the the, the major for me. It, it wasn't rigorous enough. It wasn't challenging enough for me. And so I changed my uh, major to journalism uh, because I felt that I was a pretty good writer. I had been told that I was a pretty good writer, and I was very, very inquisitive. And I knew that I wanted to be in the media. My focus is on uh, television broadcasting, television and radio broadcasting in the journalism department. Do you know where that interest and desire to do media, if you look back, when did it first start tapping you on the shoulder? My mentor, Andrew P. Andrew P. Jones, who is no longer alive. Andrew was my television broadcast professor, and he was also an independent documentary filmmaker. He was the only black professor in the School of Journalism. He worked as a, a correspondent for BET, and he also uh, made an award-winning film for the Connecticut Public Television Station. He was a real guerrilla documentary filmmaker. He was like a one-man show. He would take his camera all over the world, and he would come back with this incredible footage, and he would edit his films by himself. And he was my teacher. He also worked in, in, in the broadcast field as well. He was a really tough professor. He worked hard to make sure that we were prepared and had the skills that we needed to work in the industry. And I remember you always tell me, 
you know, you all are going to be competing with some of the best students in the country. You're going to be competing with people from Syracuse and Stanford University and, you know, all of these elite, you know, colleges and universities. And he wanted to make sure that we were prepared and well-trained. And, you know, I really learned from him. Then I took a class when I was a senior called Blacks in the Media and the Press, a class taught by Dr. Elizabeth Hadley Freiberg, really, really intelligent feminist black woman teacher. She exposed us to the films of a filmmaker named Marlon Riggs, Bay Area-based documentary filmmaker. And she showed us his films, Color Adjustment and Tongues Untied. I was like really blown away by this man's work. I was floored by his work and I was really transformed. He was a gay black man who dealt with uh, sexuality and blackness. And I decided I wanted to make the kind of impact on people that Marlon Riggs made on me. And so that was when I sort of got the inkling that I wanted to become a documentary filmmaker. And like what really, what really sort of cemented that for me was, I guess, having several experiences working as an intern and a production assistant at three Boston area TV stations. I worked at WHDH TV, WCVB TV, and WBZ TV, three local Boston stations. This is all as a college student. You know, I remember, you know, working in the sports department at W uh, TV and watching these news feeds that kept coming in from all over the all over the world, and I, I just felt like that what was happening in the world around the world was so much bigger and so much more than sports because I was contemplating becoming like a sports broadcaster, right? That's when I decided that you know I didn't want to do sports. I felt like sports was too limiting, and I also felt like television news was too limiting because they didn't really contextualize some of the social issues that they were presenting, you know, during a television news broadcast. I guess being impacted by Marlon Riggs and my professor, and I said, you know what, I want to become a documentary filmmaker. So you've been out of college for a while, but do you remember how you paid for college? I was on full athletic scholarship. Brian, you know there's a lot of young brothers out there and even parents. I think of the AAU basketball and the amount of money people are paying for the kid to play AAU basketball, to play in tournaments. You know, my sport is lacrosse. It's the same thing. Everybody thinks that's the ticket to get a a scholarship. You've been there. You've had the experience. What would you say to an 18-year-old version of you who wants – a college scholarship or wants a college education and you're also a parent so i want you to speak to the parent who's dropping money sometimes running up credit cards to get to the next aau basketball paying for the plane ticket paying for the hotel paying for the for the for the sneakers what would you say to these people one thing that i do notice is that a lot of african-american males have very limited like career objectives, right? They want to be either an athlete, they want to they want to play football or basketball in college, or they want to be a hip hop producer or like a hip hop star or in some form of, of entertainment. There are a very very low percentage of men of color who actually successfully make it into those fields, right? And and have um, a career where they have longevity. It's not it's not exclusive to race. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. there are a lot of white guys who also have ambitions to, you know, play in college or play professional sports. And I just talk about the odds, you know, of making it um, and the importance of, of always having something to fall back on in terms of their education and making sure that they are 
taking their academics very seriously. I had two parents who made sure that I did my schoolwork and that I didn't just rely on football. My mom would always tell me that, you know, my football career could end in one play, you know, and that I needed something to fall back on. You know, my grandfather was very much into education. So was my father's brother, my uncle, who was a PhD and a scientist. So I had examples of men in my life who were, you know, very academic centered and, and believed in the importance of an education. My father was an intellectual, even though my father worked with his hands and he was a contractor, he was, he was an intellectual. He was a very cerebral person. I knew that I was college bound. It was just a, uh, it was just a matter of whether or not I was going to pay for it or have my parents pay for it or have much more limited options. I had been identified very early on as a talented athlete and football player. And so I started getting recruited. Like I got my first college letter from a, from a football program in college when I was a sophomore in college. Excuse me, a, a sophomore in high school. Mm-hmm. I was a sophomore in high school, received my first letter uh, from a college. It was more realistic that I had a shot to earn a college scholarship. And so I went to two football camps when I was a junior in high school, they were college football camps. And I did this to assess, like, you know, my skill level and mm-hmm. where I compared with other athletes um, from around the country. So I took football very seriously, but, but I also knew that I had a real legitimate shot to play. A lot of young people who want to play college sports, they don't really have a legitimate opportunity. It's, some, it's more like a fantasy than it is like something mm-hmm. that's tangible and real. We're going to take a commercial break now, and we'll be right back. The Super 7, Principles to Grow, Win with People, and Be More Creative. It's a book that will help you manage your schedule, communication, dealing with criticism, learning how to give criticism, learning how to organize yourself, things that I have learned along the way. That's what's in that book. I'm excited for that bad boy to drop, and it's going to be happening very soon as an audio book, a Kindle, and a hard copy. That'll be coming out soon. We'll have some pre-sales set up in the weeks to come. Return to the show now to unpack more history to positively impact the future. Love to hear what do you think about the state of California leading the way with athletes being paid for their image and likeness and then persuading, putting pressure on the NCAA to do the same thing nationally. I am in support of athletes who can benefit from having their likeness used, exploited commercially, because I believe that... um, even though college athletes are technically amateurs, many college athletes don't really have a way of earning money outside of the scholarships that are helping to pay for their education. A lot of college athletes, particularly in football and basketball, are men of color who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, don't have a lot of economic means. 
And I think it's important for them to um, be able to take advantage of any economic opportunities that, you know, come their way, especially if there are huge corporations who are, who are monetizing their likeness. It, it, to me, it's exploitive if the athlete whose likeness is not being compensated is, and, and, and is being exploited. That's the heart of the matter for me. Um, I know that it gets more complicated than that because there are, there are numerous sports programs within each college or, or university. And so you have to sort of, you know, figure out a way in which compensation is going to work across the board. But I think when it comes to the likeness of a particular player being used by EA Sports or another, you know, gaming system or program, I think that that athlete deserves and is worthy of compensation for their likeness. I have college students all over the country who are able to earn income, you know, as college students. And so I think, you know, when you eliminate that as an option for, for college athletes, I think it just creates more room and more space for corruption, for boosters and other people uh, who have access to these students to pay athletes under the table. And, and, and a lot of times these athletes get in trouble for taking uh, money that other, other students are able to earn. You've been out of school for a while. You've been in your profession and you've seen a lot of things. Uh, both good and bad. What do you think should be a required course before you graduate college? Financial literacy 101, masculinity 101, or masculinities 101 Mm -hmm. in any gender studies program. And I would have to say race, class, and gender. So those would be the three classes that I would highly recommend that any student would have to take, that it would be mandatory for a student to take in college. So I'm, I'm really passionate about, you know, three major things, race, class, and gender. I'm also very passionate about media. So media literacy is also very important to me. When you have a media literate society, you have a more informed society, and you have a, a society that, that is a, a critically thinking society. With financial literacy, I think it's mandatory that young people know and understand how to manage, maintain, and to make money. How do you navigate the real world once you graduate from college from a financial standpoint? No one really teaches you how to do that unless you have the benefit of having parents who guide you along the way and who um, really indoctrinate you into the world of finances and, and how they work. I think I think those are, are like really important classes for students to take. What was your first job after graduating from Northeastern? And do you remember what your salary was? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I graduated from Northeastern in August of 1993. And I had a job that I that I landed prior to graduation. And it was for the Center for the Study of Sport in Society. Uh, Dr. Richard Lapchak, he ran that organization. And I was hired to work for a program called the Mentors and Violence Prevention Program. And my title was a mentor training specialist. I made somewhere around $20,000, $21,000 a year. That was my first job. The show will be right back. For related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. 
Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Purchase a copy of my autobiography slash career advice. Start with your gift on Amazon.com. I talk about internships. If you are an undergrad in your first, second, or third year, an internship is a great way to consider a job. We are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Be a difference maker right now. Purchase two or more paperback copies of Start With Your Gift. Give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life. The book is available in digital form as an ebook and audiobook. Welcome back to this edition of the Fred Opie Show. How does one get the green light yeah. in sports and in the film industry? Parallels are that beyond high school, you have to be supremely talented and gifted as an athlete. And I think the same is the case for filmmaking as well. So there are a lot of people who want to make films, but are not necessarily creative, you know, or, you know, don't have the vision, you know, to be great storytellers. So I think that you have to be, you have to really work toward being great, you know, at both. You have to work extremely hard because there are always people who are working harder than you who may not be as talented as you are, but they're just putting in more time than you are. And I think that can be said of athletics and it can be said of uh, filmmaking as well. Even right now, I'm working on a film right now about hazing. I want my film to be one of the best films of the year when it comes out. And I know that there are going to be many other films that are going to be coming out that year. So how, do, how does my film rise to the top? It means that I have to put in the work. It means that I have to study films. It means that I have to have extremely high expectations. It means I have to surround myself with a lot of talent on my on my team. It means that I have to not settle for anything less than what I want in terms of my vision. And it means that I have to work extremely hard at it because film is, it's like an amorphous thing. It's a film starts out in your head. It's not a real thing until you turn it into a real thing. It's like a big lump of clay and you have to chisel it until it becomes you know, the work that you intended it to be. And so you have to put a lot of work and you have to put a lot of time into it. And I would say that that's the case with, with, um, with sports and football. What advice would you give to the 18-year-old wannabe filmmaker? Film, what advice do you give to, to young folk who say, I want to do what you do? Get as much experience as they can working on sets. If you know a filmmaker who is local to you, reach out to them and ask them if you can be an intern or a production assistant and learn from them as much as possible. Be a sponge, watch their process, ask as many questions as possible within, within reason and appropriateness to just watch a lot of films. Figure out who you are as a storyteller, what kind of stories you like and what kind of stories you do not like, what kind of stories you want to tell Start telling stories, you know, as soon as possible. Use your cell phone to tell stories. Use iMovie. Use whatever devices that you have at your disposal to, to just tell stories, whether they're five minutes long or whether they're 60 minutes long. And then the last thing that I would say is to find a business partner. Like, if you're really serious about being in the film industry, 
find someone who you can work with, who you can trust to be a business partner because this is a business. Filmmaking is a business and you're going to be dealing with money. And anytime you're dealing with money, you have to have a system set up um, to, ha- to, man- to manage that money. So you have to know things like QuickBooks and you have to know how to create spreadsheets and create budgets and pay bills. You have to pay your crew. You have to pay taxes. You have to pay all of these different things. If you are a creative person, you should have somebody on your squad who knows and understands the business side and is just as passionate about the business side as you are passionate about the filmmaking side. There are so many of us, particularly our people, who think you need to spend the most money on the most prestigious degree and and all this kind of stuff. And then I think about return on investment because they really don't know what people who are hiring are looking for. So when it comes to hiring crew, what are the intangibles that you're looking for when you hire people? When I'm looking to hire people, I reach out to people who I know who have hired people. So let's say, for example, I'm looking for a director of photography. I reach out to my networks and I say, I'm looking for a director of photography to work on these shoots in this location. Who would you recommend? That's like a starting point for like how I begin the process of hiring a director of photography for any shoot that I'm going to be organizing. And so I take the, the, the advice of people who I respect, who have experience in the field, and who have worked with that person almost as like a filter to help me decide whether or not this person is capable, good enough, talented enough, and is reliable enough. So that's one, that's one way that I begin to hire um, crew and personnel. The other way that I do it is by watching a lot of films. If I watch a film and I love the music in the film, I watch the credit roll and I watch who scored the music, who, who composed the music for the film. They may reach out to the filmmaker and ask them what their experience is like you know, working with that filmmaker. So a lot of it is experience-based because you want, to, you want to hire people who have kind of been there before and who have proven that they deliver quality work. A lot of it is networking. A lot of it is watching films and then compiling a list of the people whose work you admire and then reaching out to them. And that's pretty much how I do it. Your response said to me is, now one time did you say, what school did they go to? It was about network. It was about your CV is your work. Can you do the work? You, yeah. didn't, you didn't say anything about yeah. school. No, I didn't. No, I don't. Not at all. You know, where they went to school doesn't matter. I mean, you know, if I'm looking at a resume, you know, where you went to school does matter. But in this field, it's, it's really about who you know and what your level of experience is. Mm. I may look at resumes if I'm looking for a PA or like an intern or, um, you know, like an office type person, not necessarily for creatives. I want to know what, what, your, what your work experience is. Mm-hmm. What films have you done? Mm-hmm. If you're an editor, what, what did you edit? Mm-hmm. What, what kind of, are, are, am I familiar with any of the films that you've edited? If not, and I see a list of films that you've edited, I'm going to watch the films that you've edited to see how you cut the film. You know, and so that's, that's, that's how I come to my conclusion. And we'll be right back.
Our scripture of the day comes from the New King James Version. Proverbs 18.21 reads, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Shirley Chisholm said, I have never cared too much what people say. What I'm interested in is what they do. Let's return to the show now to unpack more history to positively impact the future. Byron, let's uh, finish up with some rapid fire but fun and philosophical questions. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. Give me a hero, a hardship, and a highlight you've had in your life. Frederick Douglass would be my hero or a hero. Losing my dad would be a hardship. A highlight in my life has been premiering Soul Food Junkies at Lincoln Center in New York City in 2012. How have your yep. eating, drinking, and training habits, your fitness habits, changed since you were 18? If I eat then the way that I eat now, right at 18, the way that I eat now, I would undoubtedly have a 12-pack and I would be the most fit 18-year-old that I knew. That's a fact. <laughs> Love it. What about drinking? And you can go anywhere you want with this. I didn't say alcohol, not alcohol, but how are your drinking habits changed yeah. since 18? Well, you know, what's interesting. My father, he drank a lot. And, you know, he battled with alcohol. So there was a moment in high school where in my rebellious years, I started to drink, you know, when I was a freshman and sophomore. Once I became a starting quarterback on my football team, I stopped drinking. I didn't do any drugs at all. I never did drugs, but I did not drink alcohol. And um, I changed my eating habits. Now, it's important to know that what I thought was healthy when I was 18 was not necessarily healthy. So that's the difference. Today, I drink mostly water, right? Or I drink coconut water, things that are good for my body. And I eat a mostly plant-based diet, and um, I exercise every day. You know, I try and take care of my body. I drink a lot of water. I don't drink alcohol. I don't drink soda or anything with a lot of sugar in it. And so that's the difference between me now and then. Back then, I drank a lot of juice, orange juice, and things that had a lot of sugar in them. I eat meat and things that um, I don't eat today. Like, I, I eat a lot of pork and stuff like that. I don't eat those things today. You know, and I just try, really try and take care of my health. If you could have dinner with three people, dead or alive, what three people would you want to have dinner with? Martin Luther King, Ida B. Wells, and Harriet Tubman. Especially in light of, you know, me watching the Harriet uh, movie not too long ago. What did you think of Harriet? I was really inspired by her story. So her story is, is really compelling. Could have been a higher quality film in terms of the production values. Fiction films always make use of creative license and artistic license. And although I'm not a big fan of that, I mean, that's why I make documentary films instead of feature films. You know, sort of married to the truth. It's the best I can tell it, and I, and I want to know the truth. Harriet Tubman was clearly worthy of, of a, a feature film, and I think that this film should be followed up by other films about Harriet's life story and about her experiences and 
about the, the multiple and myriad phases of her life. The kindest thing anybody's ever done for Byron Hurt. I want to be just like you. I want to do what you do. I've had many people say that to me. I speak a lot around the country and I show my films or I give presentations. And, um, you know, I, I often have a lot of young men who approach me afterward and say, I want to do what you do. And that means a lot to me. When I watched Marlon Riggs' films, that, that was my response. I wanted to do what Marlon Riggs did. And if I had the opportunity to speak to Marlon Riggs, who is deceased, if I had the opportunity to go and speak to him, I would probably say that to him. I want to do what you do. I want to be like you. Mm, I like that. The best teammate and or coworker you've ever had. I would say my best teammate was my high school co-captain, Brian Pierre. He was an offensive tackle. He was my co-captain, really determined uh, individual. He was my workout partner. And we led our, our high school football team to a championship. So I would say my high school teammate was probably my, my best teammate, although I've had some really good teammates. Mm-hmm. And I think my best coworker has probably been Natalie Bullock brown who is a producer who's working for me right now. I also um, have collaborated with uh, a woman named April Silver. It, I've had everybody on my team I worked as well with as April, as I did April. Yeah, I would be at a whole different level. We have a really, really great working relationship. Shout out to Dadley. I listened to her and uh, Mark Anthony Neal on Back Channel uh, on the show State of, oh, wow, okay. State of Things. And I love her com- her commentary. And tell her I would love to have her on my show. A book or two that's made a positive difference in your career and journey. The Will to Change by Bell Hooks. The Autobiography of Malcolm X. Making Documentary Films Reality Videos by Barry Hamp. My final question for you. I want you to write a book of success. And I define success as having the most positive impact you can on the world around you. I'd like to have, there'd probably be many chapters in your book of success, but I just want to know three chapter titles. What would be three chapter titles in your book of success? Follow Your Dreams, Living with Rejection, and Never Give Up. Folks, that is filmmaker Byron Hurt. (laughs) And I tell you, I've known you, but you don't know the backstory. I love learning the backstory behind my guests. So thank you for being transparent, authentic, and sharing your journey. I think it's going to help a lot of people along their ways, particularly aspiring filmmakers like yourself. This was fun. It was a whole lot of fun. It was very interesting. So thank you for coming up with those creative questions. I've never had an interview like this before, (laughs) and uh, it was thought-provoking, but it was also fun. That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. 
you'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show. If you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would recommend to you. 